If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. Uh, we got a little bit of a special edition for you this week because I'm sitting here in Houston in a uh, practice room in the old or the current school of art, the old like music school at the University of Houston with Stephen Maticio, who is currently the uh, director and curator of the Blaffer Art Museum, but whose last day will have been this past Friday. Um, by the time you hear this podcast, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brandon. I'm very happy to be here. It does feel a little bit fitting. It feels like this is both a blank canvas and an open canvas. So a little bit of like a beginning and an end. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and I feel like, you know, you and I have had kind of oddly similar tenures in a way. Like I've been with Glass Tire for eight, I guess, almost nine years, but uh, I've been running Glass Tire for the past four to five. Uh, You started at the Blaffer Art Museum in the spring of 2019. So you kind of had a year before the COVID craziness hit. Um, But I want to go back a little farther than that and ask just about, you know, this is kind of your exit interview uh, just at the top for anyone unaware. Um, You're going to be leaving for the Knoxville Museum of Art um, in a number of weeks. Uh, But I want to talk a little bit about your time in Houston, your time at the Blaffer, a little bit about what led you to that. Um, And I feel like a good start is, you know, I want to hear about like where you come from, your schooling, but also you... uh, organized a show that in 2014 came to the Blaffer before you ever had any inkling that you were going to be running the Blaffer. Completely. And I think that actually is a good, really good place to start, Brandon, because you're right. At that time, I was curator at the Contemporary Arts Center in Cincinnati. And the CAC was undergoing a number of anniversaries all around the time that I was the senior curator, one of which was the 10th anniversary of the Zaha Hadid building that really put the CAC, it had been existing for, at that time, around 75 years. But the Zaha Hadid building was, it became iconic. It became very much an embodiment of the CAC. But, you know, it was 10 years in, and I was charged with as a curator to create an exhibition that would respond to the building and perhaps activate new perspectives on it. And so at that time... The the group show that became Buildering, Misbehaving the City, was born. And it was the idea of misbehaving built space, both within the city as well as within the building. And it really was one of the, I look back at it so fondly, it was so energizing and enjoyable and funny and inspiring. And, you know, at that time, it was, you know, it was a global group show. It had about 18 different artists and Claudia Schmuckley and Youngman Chung paid a visit. They walked through the show. They were the director and the assistant director of the Blaffer and just really responded to it and said, could this travel to Houston? Yeah. And I had never been to Houston before. And so, of course, I loved the idea. Buildering came here. It was modified. It was customized. And that was my entry point. You know, when I look back at it, Buildering actually speaks a lot to my experience of Houston. 
Um, but we can get into that a little bit further. But, well, yeah. What was it like um, m- moving a show like that to Houston? Because obviously, like, as the organizing curator, I assume you came in, did some work on it. But that... I mean, that concept for a show sounds distinctly Houston in a way. I almost think of like the 2009 Contemporary Arts Museum Houston exhibition, um, No Zoning, which uh, Toby Camps, who was your immediate former director that you followed at the Blaffer, um, it was his show. And, you know, occasionally I feel like every five to 10 years, these types of shows that really explore the craziness that is Houston and what people try and do in this city because of its weird laws, um, those shows come up. But it's interesting to me that this show came in from outside of Houston and that it was you because I I could see a visitor to the Blaffer being like, oh, this is totally responding to exactly where we are right now. No, it's so well said. Like You're right. I didn't realize how fitting for the context it was until I got to Houston and learned a little bit more about its history or sort of anti-history in some ways. Um, and so, like you say, the it's it, it was elastic enough that it could be customized for this space. To give you one example, there was a Dutch artist, Allaird van Horn, and he did these sort of responsive soundscapes. And so he had performers move through the space. He recorded that. And then the performers would re-perform to that soundtrack. And so he did it on the Blaffer stairwell. And there were UH dance professors there. And so it just felt like it could be, it could maintain that originating spirit that came from Cincinnati, but very much fit and meld and be customized to Houston. You know, and that was when I first got to Houston, I realized typically I my curatorial program is a response to the culture, the history, the idiosyncrasies of place. And typically I look to that history, that built history, the landmarks, the monuments, all of those things that kind of speak to a history. And I realized pretty quickly when I got to Houston that that Houston just didn't remember itself in the same way, that there was this kind of built-in frontier spirit, that spirit of reinvention that really infuses the character of this place. And so Bildering, just when I look back at it now, it's just like, wow, this is like, it just, to me, it was sort of a harbinger of, of what was to come and sort of the way that I would respond to Houston while at the Blaffer. That's really interesting. So, uh, okay, tell me a little bit about your time at uh, the CAC and then how you found your way there. Completely. Yeah. You know, so I went to very quick history, Bard College. I did the Center for Curatorial Studies graduate program there from 2002 to 2004. Afterwards, went to Winnipeg. I was at the plug-in ICA for three and a half years, then moved to the Southeastern Center for Contemporary Arts, SICA for short, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Was there for five years, and then that took me to the CAC um, in Cincinnati. And, you know, none of these cities would be considered like the hallmarks of contemporary art, you know. But I have really come to love working in the unexpected place because in a lot of ways I feel like you can you can spread your wings. You can oftentimes have more of an impact. You can get to know the community better. I don't know. I, I hope I'm not romanticizing the small so-called small town. But I really have loved these so-called non-center cities because I found a lot of richness in curatorially responding to them. Um, you know, and as I look back, you know, especially at the CAC, I can see that another course or track within my practice and thinking is that reinvention or a revisioning of the archive. Um, so to give you an example, at the CAC, 
we were celebrating the 75th anniversary, and I did an exhibition called Memory Palace, which is that mnemonic device when you try to locate your memories in an architectural structure. But obviously nothing is ever pure. It's never a 100% facsimile. And so at that time, I coined the term remembering as a creative act. And I kind of, I think I've carried that spirit, you know, into my work in Houston. The first show I did was with an Afghani-Lebanese-American artist named Mariam Ghani, and the project was called What We Left Unfinished. And, it, and her work was very much related to kind of the communist era within Afghanistan. But I thought, again, this is a spirit that I feel like very much kind of parallels and aligns with this, the, the sort of spirit and what I was witnessing and observing and feeling within Houston and Texas. Yeah. Well, and that's, I, I feel like uh, the, the deeper you got into the Houston community and the longer you were around, I mean, obviously it takes time to develop rela- relationships, but the more um, shows I started seeing at the Blaffer by people who were um, longtime Houston area or Houston tangential, at least artists who maybe hadn't gotten their kind of early mid-career museum do. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up because, you know, one of the first shows that I wanted to do when I got here, I did do my listening tour and that was very fundamental to what I wanted to observe. I wanted to hear. I wanted to really absorb people's perspectives before I started activating a program. But really when I got here, I wanted to work with Jamal Cyrus. Like I had seen his work I had observed it within National Biennials, and I'll never forget having that conversation with Carrie Inman and just sort of saying, hey, I've got this idea. Like, is, do you think Jamal might be overexposed in Houston? And she's like, absolutely not. Yeah. Like, this is a show that needs, just like you said, it needs to happen. It needs to have that treatment. And so very quickly, those wheels started turning. You know, and if I look back, Brandon, if I had to pick one show, that was the one that I do over and over again because... Like working with Jamal was just so inspiring, and we were able to do a major monograph. That show was able to travel to two other cities. We were able to collaborate with TSU. We had a fantastic set of public programs. It was everything looking holistically that I want to do with an exhibition. And so like you say, that that valuing and sort of locating Houston and Texan artists within the program was another cornerstone that I quickly wanted to establish. Well, I feel like uh, the Jamal Cyrus show, um, we did we did a little bit of coverage when that show happened, but that's, I'm going to say this and I want to get your thoughts on it, but I feel like we kind of see this the same way. But that's the type of, uh, using that show as an example, it's like that's the type of role that um, an exhibition could have in exposing an artist to a wider network, but also just getting an artist out of their hometown because Jamal is an example of an artist who had done quite a bit around Houston and had been showing elsewhere to some extent. But I feel like unless a show like that happens oftentimes with a monograph, like you said, um, and there's, you know, it has some legs after the fact because the monograph will be around long after the show comes down wherever it travels. But then a show that travels like that too, I believe that was the Mississippi um, Museum, Museum of, of Art. Art and ICALA. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, uh, shows that happen within local institutions are all well and fine. And I'm going to be an advocate of that kind of thing until I'm dead because I love Texas artists and think Texas artists are just as good as artists anywhere else. But there's preaching to the choir and it be kind of being a circular conversation if that show can't really gain traction anywhere else, right? It's absolutely right. You know, and that was really 
we wanted to, the Blaffer has had a very prolific touring exhibition program in the past. And honestly, it's tougher to organize those tours these days. You do try to get into kind of collaborative co-presentation models. Um, And so, you know, just along in that spirit, like Nick Vaughn and Jake Margolin, again, are two artists that I just think the world of. And they are thinking that way already in their practice. They're doing this 50 States project. We did an exhibition with them called Wayfinding. And I just hope, you know, again, I want that. I want to see their work be celebrated and embraced everywhere because I think it's just such a rich retelling of these stories. Like, again, sort of connecting with some of my presiding interests. But, you know, getting back to what you were saying, we're also working with Adriana Corral. And right now we're looking for those opportunities. She's already got this national profile. She's been in Prospect in New Orleans. But I'm like, this is another artist that, you know, has spent formative time in Houston and deserves national recognition. What can we do? How can we be that platform to sort of offer that level of exposure and activity? Yeah, that's really interesting. So can you talk a little bit about how you thought uh, your time at the Bluffer like integrating that type of programming with programming from elsewhere, because, you know, uh, during your time um, overseeing shows by people like Tyler Blackwell, who was the Cynthia Woods uh, Mitchell curatorial fellow, um, and just in the shows that you organized with like Martin, Martin Gutierrez and other people, how were you thinking about kind of interweaving those two programs to like tell a larger story of the museum or what type of narrative were you wanting the museum to get across? For sure. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. I, like you say, I think it's so crucial for a museum to have, like, you want to have a, a curatorial voice and vision that really underpins the larger program. But I think in terms of the curating, a constellation always brings in a multitude of perspectives upon subjects. And I think just enriches the entire enterprise. And I can tell you, like, one of the first shows when I got to the Blaffer was co-curated. It was a guest-curated show by Max Fields and a colleague of his with the Canadian artist Gareth Long called Kidnapper's Foil that was looking at a Dallas-born filmmaker, Milton Barker, who had gone and taken this kind of cinematic concept and re-performed it in multiple cities across the United States. And so for just so many reasons, I just love so many of the people involved in that project. And I just thought, this is this is what I want to bring to the Blaffer. And so very early on in my tenure, you know, I saw the value of that and how beautifully it could manifest. And so like you say, when we've when I look back at the five years, you know, we've tried to integrate that touring concept, that guest curator into work by, you know, Tyler Blackwell started as a curatorial fellow. He became an associate curator. We now have a wonderful assistant curator, Erica Maichua Holm. And they bring so much into that program. But, you know, as the chief curator, I'm just looking at sort of seeing the bigger picture and how we're mixing. You know, I always want to have that Houston or that Texan artist there, the national artist, the international artist, something that we've leaned into. You know, when I look at the Blaffer, I didn't want to be Cam Jr. I didn't want to be sort of a lesser version of the blue chip spaces in this in this city and so i always thought what can we do really well how can we carve out our niche and i think we've done so in that idea of of celebrating houston artists giving them a major museum exhibition but also we have this kind of sub program called next and it's the idea of what's coming up next but what's right next to me and it's those kind of artists that have had important careers but haven't been fully recognized and so can we give them the first major show molly zuckerman hartung's a great example or working with international artists uh, someone like carolyn mesquita a french artist 
who I just, like, again, I love that project, Noctambules. Um, and that was her face, first major museum exhibition in the United States. Yeah. So I think that has informed. And just if I can say one other thing, it's that spirit of performance that was always really lifeblood that I wanted to pump into the program. We are a part of the College of the Arts here at the University of Houston, interdisciplinary thinking, the Mitchell Center. All of those things were present, and I wanted the Blaffer to be that space where they could really converge and come together and be celebrated. So if I had to identify cornerstones, those are some of the major ones. Well, so kind of in the vein of performance, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the time that you've spent doing things or I guess being what the artistic director of the Cynthia Woods Mitchell Center for the Arts. Um, I've watched this program, the the Mitchell Center program and kind of all of its related programming go through a lot of different changes. Um, I actually minored in a interdisciplinary art minor that they had uh, years ago. The, the program has always had artists in residence. It's always kind of done artist talks, but I feel like it's really... Uh, it's it's been purposefully flexible to be able to play on the strength of whoever the program itself employs, and a lot of times that's tangential people who are also hold holding different roles either within the college or like at the Blaffer. Um, so you, as artistic director, and putting on the uh, program convergence research, which is which was very performance based and very also I feel like a way for you to be able to highlight people who might not be ready for a solo show at the Blaffer Art Museum. Um, so can you tell me a little bit also just just about the Mitchell Center and how you were thinking about that and how that programming came about? Completely. Yeah. So, you know, the it was founded in 2003 and Karen Farber was the longstanding director. And about three years ago, she moved to the Buffalo Bayou Partnership. And the dean kind of wanted to rethink, well, how could the Mitchell Center live, you know, within this kind of context? And Mitchell Center had really, um, it had organized Countercurrent, which is a big performance festival. And that was, in a lot of ways, like the culmination and really kind of the spotlight moment of the program. And when I was named artistic director, Melissa Noble was named as the managing director. And we thought, how can we redistribute those resources? How can we kind of maintain the philosophy and the mandate of the program, but just kind of deploy its resources in a different way. And like you say, we started to think through more artists in residencies, more visiting artists, more things that didn't quite have that two weeks of like tons of spotlight, but that could circulate on a more regular basis throughout the year. And I can tell you that we've invited artists here for those kind of intermittent residencies. And they're artists that are very interdisciplinary in nature. So they'll bring that level of performance, they'll move across music, theater, dance, spoken word, visual art, and that's the work that we want to really celebrate and highlight. So to give you just a couple examples, Manira Al-Qadiri was a project that Tyler had initiated. She gave this fantastic performance lecture at Asia Society and created a sort of a whole new filmic work. Maya Stovall was kind of a radical choreographer. She created a sort of a student group that she worked a lot with and created a performance that wove its way across campus. Um, and then Tanya Candiani recently, a Mexican artist who we partnered with Karen Farber and the Buffalo Bayou, and she shot this beautiful filmic work in the cistern, which incorporated a number of local artists, Anthony Almaderas, Gabriel Martinez, a number of, of locals. And so I just think that the, the Mitchell Center has all of that capacity. We wanted to, to bring the different units of the College of the Arts together here, but we also want to use it as a platform to reach out into the community and actively collaborate with partners. Yeah, that's, 
I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I feel like externally, you know, I, I, this could have been part of COVID also, but I feel like for a little while, I kind of lost track of what the Mitchell Center was doing just as a person outside of the university who was used to consuming kind of these large scale projects that the Mitchell Center was doing. But I think once I dug into it and learned more about it, I found out that it's like y'all were trying to do more stuff that might be a little more impactful to the people who are surrounding the Mitchell Center daily. Like I, I could see how being a student on the University of Houston campus, you would be much more tapped in than someone outside of the community or someone who is not a student, um, who isn't regularly engaging with it, who doesn't have it accessible. Um, you know, we were all used to countercurrent and that not happening. I feel like threw a flag up on everyone's radar almost, but it just, I think that's one of the interesting things about the natural progression of the life cycle of programming within institutions. It's so well said, you know, and we, we, we really think about at the Mitchell Center, you're right, it's not always publicly visible, but the Mitchell Center funds scholarships and fellowships and visiting artists and visiting professors at the university. And we really look at them as agents of change. Like we think that they are the people that we can plant and embed into this university that employ that kind of interdisciplinary thought and that openness to collaboration. And so we want to infuse it into like the bloodstream of this place. And like you say, that doesn't always catch all the marquee, but we think it has great long-term benefit. Um, And just to give you one other example, we recently partnered again with Asia Society and they have introduced this new installation program on their lawn. And there's just one recently open called Heat Silhouette. And it's essentially, it's an open stage. It becomes this platform where Art groups from across the city can go and use it to perform, to rehearse. And so we'll have some UH students doing that, but we'll also have anyone else that fancies this. And, and I love that. It's essentially it's creating that stage and the resources to allow Houston to just kind of perform itself in a different way. This, this makes me think tangentially of a question. I was actually going back and reading through um, Rainy Knutson, our former publisher, did a question and answer with Claudia Schmookley um, when she uh, left the Blaffer. Uh, and a question came up that I, I wanted to ask you the same thing because I think it's a really interesting um, thing to think about within an art space. What do you think of the director curator double job? Because, you know, I, like, at Glass Tower, people always think that I'm the editor-in-chief, and I'm like, distinctively, no, that is a separate, like, creative job that happens within the organization. Uh, But at the same time, a lot of smaller to mid-size, I would classify the Blaffer as, like, a solidly mid-size institution. Um, Even mid-size institutions don't always necessarily have that job separated into two different things. And those are it's it's really two distinct um, <laughs> two distinct hats to wear, and I think it takes a really uh, unique kind of person to be able to successfully wear both hats for an extended period of time. Yes, it's an excellent question, Brandon. And you know, I think that I'm not sure exactly where it happened within the Blaffer's history. I've been told that potentially sometime around Don Bacigalupi's tenure, because mm-hmm. um, he was coming in as a curator and he didn't want to give up that kind of curatorial practice. And so they kind of modified the position and I think it became entrenched within the Blaffer. That would make sense. Yeah. That would make a lot of sense with Don. Yeah. <laughs> and like you say, it doesn't leave a whole lot of room on your plate to, um, to kind of have free time. And, you know, and I did it to myself because I also took on the artistic director of the Mitchell Center about three years ago. Um, 
But me personally, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit about my trajectory in history, but I was coming and this was the first time I was going to be a director. I had been working as a curator in non-collecting institutions. And so for me, it was the ideal conduit or sort of that transition point where I could still carry on that curating, but I could kind of move into this larger kind of directorial perspective. And it is, it's a lot. And like you say, it can very <laughs> easily and probably at most times should be two separate jobs. But I think at the Blaffer, like I, you know, what I love about the Blaffer is that it is this hybrid where we are a museum, but in a lot of ways we have sort of a spirit of the artist run center too, where a lot of people are doing multiple jobs. You kind of have everyone, you have to assemble the village every time you do a major project. And I kind of like that part of it, that at some point, all of the parameters of those titles start to get fuzzy and we all just start contributing and building this thing. And so that's why, I don't know, I would hesitate to take it away from the Blaffer because I think there's something that now speaks to the character of how programs are developed and how they're practiced. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what the future holds. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, I think having like curatorial fellows, like we mentioned earlier, Tyler and the other people who have held that role helps a lot because I, uh, I, I know I was looking back through the website and was looking specifically for the shows that you curated so that I would be up on this before we talked um, so that I'd remember everything correctly. And I think I was in a sense surprised at how uh, many shows the curial the curatorial fellows from the Mitchell Center were able to organize, which I think is, you know, uh, probably part of necessity of you delegating as a curator director. But also it means that you don't have to be overburdened by trying to fill a lot of slots on the calendar. I think also combined with the fact that the Blaffer being a university museum, just in case anyone listening to this doesn't know, um, y'all do hold like a student art show and y'all hold the University of Houston MFA art show every spring. So there are kind of these benchmarks that you can organize around. No, right? it's it's very true. It's a very good observation, you know, and we I recognize pretty early on the Curatorial Fellowship, you're right, in a traditional sense, it's largely research-based and maybe there's a show in a year or, or every two years. Yeah. And I just thought we, the, the people that, that that position attracted were young, hungry, ambitious, really wanted to cut their teeth, wanted to start trying things out and, and realizing exhibitions. And I thought, let's run with that. Like, because you, like, you say, the director, chief curator does take up a lot of bandwidth. So why not turn this into an even greater platform when they can really try out exhibitions? And I think it's worked beautifully, you know, and I really love that, you know, because typically that, that position will turn over every three to four years. And so why not, like, really allow a young curator to, to work through a lot of ideas? Because like you say, that's another part of the Blaffer spirit. We've got the MFA show. We've got the School of Art show. We're constantly looking for opportunities for students to move through, find professional development and mentorship, and infuse our program. We've got the Blaffer Art Museum Student Association. So again, I think it, it connects to that larger idea of the curatorial constellation. And just never being too precious about things here at the Blaffer. Like Convergence Research, the program through the Mitchell Center, I started that by saying, even if you've got some idea that you just want to try out, that's not finished, that you just want to workshop, bring it here. Because I wanted that more, that, that open quality to the Blaffer. Yes, we're a museum. Yes, we have to uphold certain, you know, behaviors. But I never wanted it to be, become airless. Like I wanted that that level of becoming to, to be present at all times. Tell me a little more about um, the the university relationship and the and, and 
the university relationship, but also specifically like the the student relationship. Because, you know, I whenever you're organizing a show that has 25 MFA students, that's its own kind of um, negotiation. Whenever you're organizing a show that has 35 graduating art student seniors, that's its own kind of thing. And that's that's a that's a role of the blaffer that is so distinct from any other kind of museum peer that you'll have in Houston or even in Texas. Like, you know, unless I'm sorely mistaken, which I don't think I am, like the Meadows Museum at Southern Methodist University, they don't have the the student MFA show. That's another institution on campus. So like the role of the university museum, but also being the place for like these younger artists to kind of really get their first real experience of dealing with the museum breeds an interesting dynamic. Completely, completely. You know, and we were friends here. We can be candid. Like I can tell you that the relationship between the Blaffer and the School of Art has been tumultuous at times. It has been. Yeah, I, I, sure. I went to the it's University of Houston. I was not an art student, so I wasn't a part of that. Yeah. But I knew art students who were like, I wasn't able to show this thing that I really wanted to show. That was not during your tenure, I'll say. But also, I mean, I think it's the, the institutional negotiation. It's the first time that artists, you know, as a young artist, you kind of get real pushback or have to really make negotiations around it, right? Absolutely. Very true. You know, and so I, I knew that coming in, that there had been some butting of heads in the past, that some former directors were like, kind of like, ah, oh, this is the school, this is the MFA show, like, let's just get this thing done, you know, and, 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 and I really wanted to, I came in with very much optimism and idealism. I'm like, let's repair this, let's bridge build, let's do all of these things. And I can't honestly say that I feel like the relationship has gotten better. But it is, like you say, by embracing all of those tumbles that are going to be taking through that process because it is like our staff is learning the students the students are learning the staff they're trying to find this common ground they're trying to do things for the first time and that's exactly what it's meant to be like I you know I'll never forget a conversation with Doug Welsh who loved Doug shout out to him he was an MFA student here and he's like oh man I'm not sure if I should show this one painting like my faculty committee is not sure if that best embodies this I'm not sure if it should set the course for my career and I was like, man, this is the time when you can sort of look at this. You can put it in the museum and say, I'm not sure this is what I want to do anymore. Like, I like that idea that this doesn't have to be a finished, polished product. And so we've really tried to have that sort of, not, I don't say govern, but really inform our relationship with students. And I can tell you now that our, our assistant or associate curator does studio visits with all the MFA students. We have an intern from the art history department who spends the year with us, and they write the exhibition labels for the, for the show. And so we produce a catalog for it. So all of those things, we want to really value that, that exhibition, that project, the School of Art Showcase. And as you know, with our 50th anniversary catalog, we titled it Two Front Doors because it was coined by our dean. And I just love the idea that we are that junction point between the city of Houston and between the campus. And we want both of those parties to be represented and feel like they can really meet on an equal footing and find common ground here. Talk to me a little bit about the 50th anniversary, because we haven't touched on that yet. Um, the book that the Blaffer produced for the anniversary is is a wonderful document. It's a wonderfully put together book. Um, and I think it's also interesting that you were in Cincinnati during their 75th and then you were here during the 50th. No coincidence, <laughs> but still. Anniversary, yeah. 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 And, and I've, I need to start with a big shout out to Pete Gershon um, because I met Pete early in my tenure here when he was working at the core program, loved collision, loved impractical spaces. I just thought, 
Pete like tells the story of art history in Houston in a really down-to-earth, accessible way that I think kind of speaks to the spirit of this place. And so when we were contemplating doing this book, you know, and shout out to the listeners, like I had a baby last year and I had a second baby when we decided to do this book because it takes like almost as much time to like let this thing grow and, and sort of cultivate. But when Pete came on board and became the editor and the overseer, it just got, it, 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 it sort of assembled the energy and the kind of knowledge that was necessary to take it through its process. And, you know, I can tell you, it, we got texts from all of the past directors. We had former MFA students, right? We had faculty here at UH. We just, it, to me, it was always going to be a tapestry of voices to kind of cobble together this history from multiple purviews and perspectives. And so we're super proud of the book. And again, I, I feel like it does speak to that kind of collective entity that, that, that the Blaffer has become. So why Knoxville? <laughs> Well, I can, maybe I'll share, you know, I, I've, I've talked a little bit about my, my professional trajectory, but if I may, for just a little personal trajectory, been here five years and a lot of life has been lived here, Brandon. Yeah. Like I can tell you, I, I met and now married my wife, Anita, um, during these five years. And I became a dual citizen, Canadian and American, and we decided to have this, this little baby named Maya Rose, who came to us August 30th last year. And, you know, looking at all of these things, um, we just decided what's the next best step, you know, for our family in this moment in time. And, you know, I had worked in North Carolina for five years, Winston-Salem. Um, there's just a real nice kind of slower pace of life um, in the southeast. And we just thought kind of nestled into the Smoky Mountains and the Tennessee River. I thought this, this could be a good next step for us. Um, but that's not to say that I don't like will not miss or keep in touch with Houston um, because like just so much work has been done here, so much has been accomplished. And spoiler alert, I probably got two or three shows that I kind of initiated and are still on the books. So we'll be cycling back pretty regularly. Um, but Knoxville, you know, it, it, again, kind of going back to that idea of smaller town level of impact that you can have and the Knoxville Museum of Art was kind of built around exploring Appalachian culture but not doing so in a kind of provincial regional way but really looking at it as a metaphor to sort of think about similar cultural experiences and how those can inform a, a more global perspective but also to give due to context and immediacy and locality and i love that i love that conversation and how that can happen yeah that makes a lot of sense and i mean hearing you know i i think for our listeners hearing you talk about the way that you think about the institutions that you've been involved with like knoxville is kind of a very logical choice because it's also kind of a i mean you you mentioned north carolina but it's still kind of a completely different culture than the midwest or completely. whatever you want to call houston the south <laughs> the, sure, the yeah. t just texas yeah. um or north carolina it's still north carolina is still not quite yeah. like what yeah appalachia Completely. And I just, I, you know, as we've mentioned, like I, I found great richness outside of the so-called centers. Um, and it's interesting because just now, like moving to Knoxville, all of these artists like 
Gabriel Martinez, love him. He said, hey, there's this artist residency right out of, right out of Knoxville called Log Haven. You should look into it. And it's just like, I'm like, oh my God, it's right next door. And Lisa Lipinski reaches out and says, hey, I'm having an opening there in, in April. And so, so I like that there's going to be that kind of the underdog there that, that we can really sort of lean into and say, why does this matter here? How can it matter on a larger stage? You know, and, and just how that will inform the program. Well, uh, I have... Two very hard-hitting questions before we wrap up. Um, one is, besides art, what are you going to miss most about Houston? Wow. Everyone, you know, and this is true. The one thing that people say right away is the restaurants. And obviously, like, we love, Anita and I love food. We love to explore different cuisines. And there's no better city that I've ever lived in or visited than Houston. Um, so that will be a big one. But honestly, again, I... The way that I love interdisciplinary kind of collaboration in at the Blaffer, I've loved to explore all of the arts in Houston. And we just have such amazing quality here. Like when you look at the opera and the theater and the symphony and everything that's happening at the grassroots level, I'm really going to miss that. Because in Houston, as we both know, you can find something to do every night. And just experiencing all of that, I know, has greatly informed the way that I think, not only as a curator, but as a person. And so I'm going to miss the, the, the level of activity and access that Houston has offered. I fully agree with both of those things. And that would be my exact answer if I were moving away. <laughs> um, my second hard-hitting question is, anyone who's ever seen you out and about knows uh, your um, talent at your sartorial choices. So any advice for um, anyone listening to this podcast that wants to dress better, maybe uh, for the men out there or, or women, uh, where do you find all of your wonderful blazers? Um, any, any general advice about how this came to be? <laughs> Not the first time I've been asked this question, Brian. I, and I am not yes, surprised. Yes. <laughs> and typically I say I have to reach into the far corners of the internet, and honestly, that is usually <laughs> true. Um, but I love that you asked me this because I remember I was so... I am a recovering introvert, you know? And like growing up, like being a student and kind of trying to find my footing as a curator, I was shy. I was always like... I, I want to be in the background, you know, I don't want, I want to let the artist and the exhibition shine. And that is still true. I don't want to put myself before the exhibition, but I'll never forget. It was in Cincinnati, Brandon, when this was born, because I walked by this store called the House of Adam and all of these. <laughs> That's such a good name. <laughs> these very colorful, flamboyant suits were all around me, Brandon. They just like, they just sunk into my consciousness. And so one day I walked in there and I'm just like, I'm going to get one of these jackets. We were opening up a Mark Mothersbaugh show at the CAC of Devo. I'm like, what better time and place? And so I got a jacket, Brandon. I took, put it on. I was just like, should I do this? I'm not sure. And I just got such fantastic response. Like people just, it became that icebreaker. It became that conversation point. So in a lot of ways, maybe it took me and it brought me a little bit out of my shell. And so I've, I've never forgot that feeling. But every time I put one of those suits on, I always think for a minute, should I do this? Like, should I, I'm, <laughs> like, should I really do this? And of course, it's like you get launched out of a cannon. Everyone comes up. It's always a, it's a great conversation point. And so 
I, I do hope the tradition will continue here, but you do. You have to take your machete out there, get into the into you know all of those those internet niches, and find what speaks to your spirit and like be loud and be colorful. And so I've loved what it's brought. It's, I've I've really enjoyed it, and it will continue on. And I hope it will. I hope the torch will be carried here in Houston. Well, I haven't seen that as a part of the Blaffer director description, but I wouldn't be surprised if after <laughs> you it gets added in. I I will I will I'll do a write-in vote. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Um, I know all of us are wishing you the best of luck in Knoxville, and I know we'll all be following your programming there from afar and also excited for everything that you've scheduled out, which is uh, on the horizon for the Blaffer. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Gabriel. Thank you, Glass Tire, for all that you do. And thank you, Houston. Like, thank you for supporting me, for supporting the Blaffer, for being such a fantastic community that just is infused with wanting to be more and be better and that aspiration and that optimism. I've loved it. I hope it stays here forever. So thank you to everyone. And that is our podcast for the week. We'll be back in two weeks. There's a ton happening this winter spring. So until then, uh, check out our event listings and get out of the house and go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2024.